Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. My name is Tiasha Zaitz, and today we're going to dive into digital health law. You'll hear a discussion with Bianca Rose Phillips. She's based in Australia. She's a global digital health law theorist and the founder of the Digital Health Think Tank. In her legal work, she's focused mostly on Australia and the United States. Many people know her by her framework of the so-called eight pillars of digital health lawmaking, which we discussed in the talk you're about to hear. Bianca also contributed to the recently published book Voice Technology in Healthcare. She's a lecturer and also runs two podcasts, Too Nice for Law and Digital Health Law Series. In this discussion, we addressed the current state of digital health law legislation, the legal standpoints in data privacy and ownership, and other interesting topics from the area. Enjoy the discussion, and to browse through other episodes as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Two disclaimers before we begin. As mentioned, Bianca practices law in the United States and Australia, and that's the framework she is referring to in her answers. Also, this is a discussion of informative nature, so always seek professional advice for specific questions. Now, to Bianca. Bianca, you're a very distinctive member of the digital health community because you're a digital health advocate and a lawyer. That's not a very common profile in the community. So my first question is, how does your perspective on digital health differ when you read the news with your legal glasses on? How does your view differ from a regular reader? Do you think differently about the news that you read? So when I look at anything, whether it be a conversation that someone has had or an article that I'm reading, I'm thinking about it from a legal perspective in the mind of someone who has done legal training and who who has studied law. And uh, when you go through law, you do at least 11, they're called the Priestly 11 courses. And uh, that's 11 areas of law that you investigate. But I've been very grateful that I've been able to lecture in law, teach Juris Doctor students over the past 10 years. And so I've taught in 20 areas or more. And so when I look at anything, I start, my brain starts firing with administrative law, constitutional law, human rights, contracts. I'm thinking it's all coming to my mind, but I'll just give you a bit of a sense of a lawyer and how we think and how we're trained to think. There are some core principles that we that we follow. One is non-assumptive thinking. You could be pretty certain that I'm trying my best not to assume anything when I'm reading a paper or listening to a talk. Facts over emotion. We have to learn to control our emotions in law and look at the facts. That's so essential. Very hard to do sometimes when you're looking at matters that are upsetting on, on uh, social media or something that, that really touches home, it can be very difficult. But when you are working, when you're in the professional setting, these are the principles that, that I'm thinking about. So facts over emotion, non-assumptive thinking, and I try and bring it into just my general life anyway, because I think it's important. 
tolerance for ambiguity. I'm okay if what you or someone else writes has ambiguity in it. It doesn't cause me to want to respond in a way that is, you know, attacking or very critical of the ambiguity itself, that we learn to handle ambiguity and respond to it in a way that will be effective. And then there's the, I think lawyers are very well known to be what we call, and this is not necessarily a nice way to describe it, but a devil's advocate. You learn to be able to play, play the role of arguing a particular matter on one side, and then you should be able to do the same for another on the other side and so you, you train in how to do that to answer your question simply i'm looking at it from all of those perspectives you created a framework of eight pillars of digital health lawmaking but before we dive into those i wonder can you name a few examples of what kind of legal work do you do in practice so what do companies usually turn to you for I split my time on three tasks. One is academia and teaching, where I, I absolutely love my role in teaching Juris Doctor students and examining them, and, and then the academic work as well, real serious research work that I do, funded by universities. And, and so that's part of what I do. And there's the strategy and policy work, and this is where clients are gonna come and see me, and I can elaborate on that in a moment. If anyone goes to my website, BiancaRosePhillips.com, they'll be able to see a little bit about that policy work that I do and strategic work. And then there's the legal work. So from time to time, I will take on a special kind of interest case or something like that. But it's usually, it's when I see that a company is advertising for a role for a lawyer. At other times, it's that a person has come to see me and they already have a legal team and, and I end up connecting with that legal team. So part of what I do is some legal work, but I join as an employee of that firm so that I'm working with a group of practitioners for a set period of time to assist with, with matters. And that's, that's real legal work, which is very different to say policy strategy work. So just to give you some examples of when people have come to see me and it ranges, I've had a startup who had their legal team established. They had a product, digital health product. They really liked their lawyers and they really wanted to keep working with them, but they realized and the lawyers told them, we don't have subject matter expertise in digital health. And they came across my work, contacted me and wanted me to help them. So what I did was set up a meeting with their legal team and them to give guidance to the legal team. And so that way, if I can help the legal team in directing them, they will then, if I say, this is the legislation that you should be looking at, or these are the sections of the legislation to consider, I'm then assisting them to not have to look at everything. They can focus in on specific things. So it saves them time, the client is happy, and then they can go about doing the actual work because they're lawyers, they have the training to do it. Sometimes it's just about having another person to check with that you're on the right path or, or, or being directed into the right kind of area. So that's one example. Then there's also the startup small business that comes to me because they're established, they've got a product, they've got lots of money, they've got a good legal team, like a really good legal team helping them. But they're finding that people are not really taking the business seriously or they have questions. 
over the credibility of the business. And so they will ask me to assist them with strategy, gaining credibility. We will write papers together, get some writing out there. They may use some of my networks and connections to develop that credibility. But on that, I really am very cautious about who I take on as a client. So people who come and see me often will be referred elsewhere. And I don't take every client that comes to me. If I was thinking like a smart business person, I probably would. But I, I just think that it's such a specialized area. You need to be in the right domain at the right time, the right people. And I'm okay with the idea that someone may need to go elsewhere and then come back at a later stage or just move elsewhere. So I take on matters where I know I can assist, I know it can be of benefit. And, and that's another example. And just one more, I had a multi-billion dollar company come to me because they were starting up in digital health and it was new to them. So they established a lot of credibility and a lot of money in another industry. And now they're looking to go into digital health. And they had come across my publications, which were quite serious academic legal papers on digital health that I did in the earlier days of being in this industry. They saw my papers said, I don't know anyone else doing this in Australia, what you do, can we learn from you? We just want to understand this area more. So education for these bigger companies who have, they've got all their teams established. They've got fantastic legal teams. They have got marketing, they've got PR, they're huge. But even those big companies want to hear from people who have been delving into niche spaces. So I like to think of it as a bit of a boutique practice that I have. Based on everything that you described, your framework of the eight pillars of digital health law is something that can be very helpful to digital health teams. So just to summarize before you dive into the content more, the eight pillars of digital health as defined by you are to think about human rights, clinical benefits, uh, societal benefits, harm reduction, risk reduction, also business case and public consultation. So that's eight things that people need to consider, which means that this is eight variables to take into consideration in decision making, which to me sounds like a lot. So how do you actually use this as a tool? Is there a hierarchy of what's important or what not. It's, it's a very simple framework, but there is much more to it. So you're asking here a question around a list essentially of values. There's another one as well, accountability of lawmakers for the reasons of their, their decisions. But let's talk about this notion of competing values. So let's say that the eight pillars is a suggested values framework for digital health. And we know that as people, it's important that we understand our values or at some point in time, we have to face our value system. Very hard to do, but at some point, if we haven't grown up our whole lives with an understanding, a deep understanding of our values, at some point we need to consider them because how we behave, the decisions that we make along the way, if we don't have that understanding can be impacted. So it's the same with digital health. We have um, this vision of what we want to achieve and accomplish. But what I'm challenging 
organisations to do is to consider the values that keep digital health standing. If digital health was a house, right, the pillars beneath it need to be strong and we want to keep it standing. Now, these are the eight pillars that I've suggested. What do you do if there's a conflict between two values? For example, let's look at the My Health Record System as an example. This is the Australian Centralised eHealth Database. You could have a very strong argument that there is an economic benefit of the said project, that by doing this project, you're going to save money in healthcare. You may have reports written by prestigious firms to support that notion, and there could be a good economic case. And so you may argue that there is societal benefit in doing this thing because the more money we have as a country and the more successful that we are in business, the more we can offer our communities and there are benefits to that. But then someone else, like a, a medical practitioner, may very well come to you and say, what about the clinical benefit? This is another pillar. Could you tell me about what the evidence is to support this initiative? Is it actually going to improve healthcare? Could it, and this goes to another pillar, result in harm? Is there going to, are there going to be harms that could result that certainly you wouldn't intend to occur? We all, I think, I believe in the goodness of, of people and humanity and, and our goals, but you may not intend for that harm to occur, but we must consider it. So there is always in society this tension between competing values. And there's a theoretical way to examine this. It's, the term is incommensurability, the incommensurability of competing values. It's when there is a, could be a conflict between two values. So you want to engage in a project by looking at the eight pillars. You say, this is a strong argument and this is a strong argument, but they don't match up. So the incommensurability um, thesis was developed by Henry S. Mather, who's a, th a theorist, and he talks through how we can resolve these tensions in our values. How do, what's a process that we can use to actually uh, determine what to do? So there are methods that he considers we should use to resolve conflicts. And I'm reading off my own work here because I've done analysis of all this. So some examples that you can consider is choice permitted by reason. You can also look at rational choice and irrational choice. These all have meanings, by the way. This is just a description. Moral principles. So you look deeply at your morals. Social traditions. Prudential principles, which is when you balance different choices and go through a balancing process. And intuition, which is our immediate judgment without any conscious process or inference, which actually, if you look at the literature around lawmaking and decision-making literature, often you'll see intuition mentioned, which is very interesting. So there are methods to resolve conflicts and Henry S. Mather put forward this theoretical way we can do it. And you can consider it within those domains. So let's, for ex uh, example, have a look more closely at this notion of rationality. So then there is these sub-elements you can use to determine whether the choice between one pillar and the other is rational. So Henry S. Mather put forward this process. 
you can uh, look at whether the choice was required by reason, whether the choice was permitted but not required by reason, or if the choice was prohibited by reason. It's irrational. And I could go on and on. There's so many different sub-elements that Henry S. Mather puts forward for how we can go about making these very difficult decisions that we have to make, that companies have to make, people have to make, society has to make, lawmakers are making these very difficult decisions between competing values. And I love the idea of there being a framework or a theoretical basis to explore that concept. But a couple of quotes that are really interesting from Henry S. Mather, he said that the incommensurability thesis, which is the whole thesis that explores these elements, merely asserts that rational, a rational person can disagree as to how certain conflicts between goods and installations can be resolved. It does not tell lawmakers which rationally permissible resolution they should prefer. So it's yeah. not, it doesn't give you an answer, but it gives you a process to work through to then have those conversations looking at a range of things. It's, I think this is like uh, really interesting, just, uh, exactly because cultures differ so much. So values yes. of one nation are so different from the value of another nation. And for example, one of the hot topics from the legal standpoint in digital health is data sharing and privacy. And Europe here is also often seen as the dinosaur in development because of strict data protection laws. We're very cautious. Um, and I see Europe as a sort of a fortress that does remind us of serious consequences that we might fall into if we're too careless about the data due to convenience. And personally, as a European, I don't mind if we're lagging behind in the U.S. in adoption of certain things. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because we're now seeing how big tech is entering healthcare. And in December last year, Google launched a program to address interoperability in healthcare. They're now going back into creating personal health records. And all this brings up the questions, what's going to happen? if Google takes hold of medical data globally, because in the interoperability space, they're building the care studio with the aim to get hospitals to put data in the cloud where it's gonna be easily searchable through their special search engine, which would be amazing for clinicians. And it's definitely going to probably improve care and finding information, but it does bring up the question, what does it mean if a company as Google get so close to, to healthcare data. So what's your kind of view when reading about these topics? I'm going to start with something really, really a simple idea. And that is that we need to check in on fear in digital health. The fear that we have around privacy and the fear that we have around the worst possible thing happening. We have to consider those aspects as a lawyer, right? you are trained to think of the worst possible thing that could happen in a given scenario. And, uh, and so in my mind, when I look at different things, including different projects by big companies or small companies, it's not just the big companies. I actually worry less about them than I do the smaller companies, to be honest. The, sm the unknown, the ones that haven't proven yet that they're credible, that they're reputable, that they can do what they say they can do. That concerns me. 
more than the company that has most of the time proven itself and anyone, like any human and like any company will make mistakes. It's a question of, in my mind, how we go about respecting that fear that, that exists. And also not just the emotion, the fear, but the real possible foreseeable risks uh, and tangible risks that could manifest based on looking at previous case law, looking at previous situations where things did go bad. What can we learn from those scenarios? So I like to, in my analysis, go to the cases look at the legislation and ask myself the question of, okay, what has happened before and what could happen again? What would this look like? What would be the consequences and outcomes? I think we can learn a lot from Facebook and we can learn a lot from Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress a few years ago, where he said, and this is not word for word, but he did say that they didn't take a broad enough view of their societal responsibility. And he apologized. That is extremely powerful, those words. We didn't take a broad enough view of our societal responsibility, which is essentially saying we had, you've got your legal team, you've got your marketing team, you've got all these teams established, you have all the money. People are probably thinking, what excuse do you have? You've got all the resources to do the right thing, but yet look what happened in this particular situation. There's no excuse for it. You should have done better. And he's saying, we would, well, what he said is that they were tackling very challenging new domain and they made mistakes and they obviously were looking at it in a different way. Their lens was too narrow. And so my, what I would encourage companies to do big and small and governments and people is to take this broader view of their societal responsibility. That's what the eight pillars seeks to do. It seeks to encourage organizations, people and governments to take this broader view, to consider a range of factors in a new lens, to bring it all together because you have your different teams working in silos on projects, but there has to be the values around society and where you want to take your product and how that is, how that works it has to underpin it all. It has to, and it has to connect everyone with these projects. I think it's exciting. I try not let my fear overtake because I have them just like anybody else. It, it's a little bit scary when we're in a domain of health information because it's such personal sensitive information any of us would be probably devastated if our health information was compromised if it was particulars around something we do share a lot of our information already voluntarily on social media but a lot of us don't share personal sensitive information and we don't want it shared with anybody. Companies have to take concerns seriously. They have to consider a broader societal responsibility because we can just see from history what happens. We can learn so much from social media companies and how they approached it. Let's be different in digital health. We don't need to copy uh, that method. We don't need to go down the same pathways that other companies have. Let's be an example because we're in the healthcare domain and there is a lot at stake 
for individuals, for people, for communities. What I don't want to see happen is that we go backwards. I'd like to see that we move forwards. I'd like to see that we learn from history. The last 10 years were just stagnant in the area, stagnating. We weren't moving very quickly overall. Uh, you could argue that we were going backwards. Some digital health projects set the industry back by many years. Even though the intention was good, then the people working on the projects probably believed in the project or they had good incentive to believe in the project, but we need to sometimes step back and look at this, the industry or the project from a broader perspective. And so that would be, those are my words on, on what we need to be thinking about, including for companies like Google. I hope you're enjoying the discussion with Bianca so far. I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to another event that Bianca is organizing. Voice for Equality, which will take place on April 28th, explores how our communication and multidisciplinary efforts could advance healthcare. You can join the live chat and listen to the various thoughts of speakers from digital health revolution strategist and law theorist Bianca Rose Phillips, who's the host of the event, the surgeon and futurist Dr. Raphael Grossman, clinical health psychologist Dr. Mike Stanton, legal epidemiologist and attorney Chelsea Ukoha-esk, health innovation advocate Jill Bash. I'm also among the speakers. And there's plenty other very interesting thought leaders from the space. Find the link to the event in the show notes. And I hope to see you on April 28th. Now let's return to the interview with Bianca. You come from Australia, and if I'm not mistaken, you opted out of my health record, right? With my health, I did opt out, yes. Okay, opted so ju- just to go to... My whole family. So basically, my health record is a national infrastructure in Australia for electronic healthcare record exchange among healthcare providers. It gained quite a lot of international media attention a few years back when it was implemented because at first it was an opt-in system, but then not enough people really uh, decided to go into the system. There were other controversies, but today it's an opt-out system, which in essence brought high kind of adoption rates because generally people don't want to be bothered uh, by things. And probably a lot of people didn't, especially if they don't have healthcare issues, they just didn't bother to to dive into the pros and cons of opt-in or opt-out. So a brief comment here and what led you to decide to opt out of the system as a basically, you, you're you an advocate for digital health, but I also believe that you're an evangelist. You are very hopeful about the progress and here you decided to step back. Wow, great question. There's a few points and a few elements to that question, I think. So I just want to touch on the first one, evangelism. I'll just note this quickly, not that it's the most important point here. There's a certain connotation that I think comes with the word evangelist that I've never associated with myself. I respect those who consider themselves evangelists. 
I understand. I understand it. I understand its role. I think it's very important. But yeah, I definitely consider myself more of an advocate of digital health rather than an evangelist. So on that point, yes, I am an advocate. I want digital health to succeed. But everything, every decision, every idea has to, has to be made looking at a range of different factors. So the first thing I would say in regards to the My Health Record system and just health records generally, it's very important that patients keep a record of their health information, a complete record. That can be your responsibility. If each of us kept a record of our health information, then we, we can give that information to a relative who may need to take us to the ER. We can take that information to a health provider, no matter where we are in the country. So first and foremost, it is very important that we organize ourselves so that we have health information. Uh, you know, if it, a history, a medical history with our allergies and our medications and some information that will be of assistance. That's almost like a summary of one's health. And you should include evidence of that summary. And so in my family, we take that very seriously. We have, and maybe I don't do what everyone else does, but I actually create summaries of my health information in a table with the key things that I'd want any doctor to know about me. And, and I keep that very safe. That information is kept very securely. And I see it as my responsibility. You're a so dream patient. We, pardon? You're a dream, dream patient. patient. I probably am. It's I, I, they usually smile when they see me with this document. Yeah, because um, I think there's not enough aware, awareness <laughs> for patients to actually have to be prepared for their medical visits. Yeah, you need to be prepared as a patient. I don't believe in, and this is just how I go about my life and my thinking process. I don't think that everything that goes wrong is someone else's fault all the time. We have responsibilities. It's our health. It's our life. There is nothing, if, if you have the ability to access those particulars, you can do it. You've just got to, you just have to do it. You've got to sit down and do it. And it's, it takes a little bit of work and a little bit of time. A lot of us are very busy and we don't have that time and we think it'd be much easier if just the doctor had all the information and they could speak to each other and, and access it and that's going to solve all of our problems it's their problem it, they need to work it out interoperability needs to occur on that end and i'm the patient it's an entitlement in a way like i'm i'm deserving of all the admin and all the documentation should be done elsewhere and i rock up as the patient and you must give a certain level of care to me, but we have responsibilities too. And you see this in the law when they look at cases that go before courts in negligence, they balance how an individual has mitigated their risk. And, and that's a kind of a legal perspective, but I believe that we can do a lot to empower ourselves. So with the My Health system, I just, I'd followed it from the very beginning. And I had looked at it from academically because I was actually studying this 
I looked at it from different perspectives. I looked at it from the patient perspective and the physician's perspective. I just looked at it from the beginning and I followed it and I made a decision based on what made sense for my family. And I think we all need to do the same. You need to look at the what's being presented, the, the offering of the government to partake in this system. And you need to consider it on an individual level of what is the right thing for your family. It's important to be aware of what the options are, how you can how you can ensure that people have relevant information to help treat you. There are different ways to go about it. And I definitely encourage people to have those conversations and to learn about what the options are for data storage. So what bothered so, you, just for a broader understanding, and given that I think it's become pretty evident based on what you told us so far that you are very meticulous when making decisions. So I'm super curious to know, like, why not? I'll talk about one, a couple of things that that I did consider when assessing the risk. One was the wording of the legislation. So I read that legislation from beginning till end multiple times and I assessed that legislation and spoke to legal experts on its interpretation. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is the fact that it was opt-in and then it became opt-out. When they did that, there's an issue there around trust they told us that this system was an opt-in system, that we had a choice to partake in it. And we still do have a choice. We can leave. Correct. And there's nothing to say that I won't opt in in the future because I'll wait and see how it goes. And if at a point where I can see the benefit outweighs the risk, I will join. We have to be careful with our health records and we need to take ownership of that. And if my health system is how you choose to do it and you've balanced the risks and you've considered those factors, then, then go for it. And, and I wish you all the best. But with my family, it's, it's different. And the most important point that I want to make is that we need to have certain particulars need to be available to healthcare providers so that no matter which healthcare provider, they have that information so they can help you and treat you. And that's what really matters. I think that data ownership and control is a very interesting topic. And in an interview for Voice First Health, you mentioned that a patient could control, mm -hmm. but not own their data. And I think that's very important. You are a very responsible patient in the way that you treat your data, but like I'm, not exactly like that. I guess I I would say I just like to know that somebody else is also taking care of the data. I do see as a patient that sometimes doctors don't have all your information. So I, it's always good to bring medical exams with you, but it would be intimidating for me to think that data is only my responsibility as a patient. And I don't know from the legal standpoint, the idea of data ownership became, and data control became very popular with blockchain, but hospitals always want to have a copy of your data for liability issues. So how does that go together? Data ownership and control is one of the most important and key issues 
that we will be talking about as we proceed with digital health, as you have highlighted. The courts have been looking to understand data ownership laws for many years, and there are some really interesting and good case, cases and case law examining the meaning of data ownership because you can have legislation that, that articulates what rights people have in data, but sometimes courts need to actually analyse those provisions and give meaning to them. And they go through statutory interpretation processes, applying particular methodologies that you learn when you go through law school and in legal training to give meaning to words in legislation to let us know what the law says. Now, that's one point. The next point I want to make is that there is a distinction between control and ownership. Often what I see in the literature is that those two concepts conflated. People will say patients should own their data, patients should only be the ones to own their data, I understand where such individual may be coming from, that there is this wanting, this desire for patients to be empowered. But we have to be realistic. If patients owned their data completely, and we, we will talk in a moment what that means, what the word ownership means, but if a patient owned their data, what does that mean for the physicians caring for you? And what does it mean for the digital health companies who are managing that data? When I see people putting forward an argument that patients should own their data, I'm okay with that. But it's the reasoning process that is used to support it that I have some issues with generally. Because if you're going to make such a big statement like that, with such big implications, you need to support your reasoning. There has to be a process that you use to support what you are saying. It's one thing to say patients need to be empowered. We want them to have more control over their lives. That's one thing. It's another thing to say that patients should own all of their information or all of the data that is used to treat them. It is a very, I understand this is sensitive ground for some people, especially if you've ever been in a situation where you were not empowered, you were not in control, and someone else had your information and you couldn't access it easily. And you felt like you didn't have the knowledge to be able to look after yourself and you needed to be able to advocate for yourself because no one else was doing it. Trust me, I know what that feels like, and it's the worst. But we need to look at it from the realities of what law says around ownership and how incredibly complex this concept is because the reality is that we can want something so badly, but it's the legal system is going to have to articulate these concepts. So I want to talk about this notion of ownership for a minute. I put forward this question to one of my professors when I was studying my master's. I said, do we need to choose who owns the data? 
And we were looking at a whole range of different ownership rights. We were looking at ownership in the body, in the human body. We were looking at ownership of, of eggs. If someone Could someone sell their eggs? Ownership of could you own your hair? You know, so we were looking at all the different perspectives of ownership when I was studying my master's program. And I asked the professor at the time, and this is where the concept came to me, do we need to choose an owner? And she said, there's another way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is what is the more pertinent question? Rather than making such a big decision or choice, what is the more pertinent question? And she said, the more pertinent question is to determine what rights subsist in that thing, whether it be data or physical property, what rights subsist in it? And we could use a theory developed by Tony Honore. He had a theory called the bundle of rights conception of ownership. And in his theory, he articulated 11 elements or incidents of ownership. And it is possible, according to the bundle of rights conception, for more than one party to concurrently have rights in the same aspect of ownership. That is the primary question. And then the secondary question is, what do we make of ownership? Now, I don't think there's any denying that we will have to, at some point, face the question of ownership. But there are also valid questions and important questions around rights. So to give you an example, the 11 incidents of ownership, the right to possess, the right to use, the right to manage, the right to income, the right to, actually it's stated, the right to the income, the right to the income, the right to capital, which is the right to alienate that thing, the right to security, which is immunity from expropriation, that is, the, no one can take it from you, the right to transmissibility, the absence of term, so the indeterminate length of one's ownership, the prohibition of harmful use, that there is a duty to refrain from using that thing in a way to harm others, liability to execution, which is uh, liability for having the thing taken away in payment of a debt, that it could be used to pay a debt, and residuary character, the existence of rules governing the situation when there are lapsed ownership rights. So what happens if your taxes are not paid or someone else, there's some other obligation? And so as we move forward in this discussion around data ownership, and we'll be having this discussion for a very long time, when you really consider the history of, of how long the courts have been examining matters of ownership, it, it's very, very long history because ownership is something that, that we value. We value property very highly. And these mm -hmm. 11 incidents, I think, form a really good basis to discuss this concept more of, of ownership because you may you very well will need actually 
more than one party to participate in these rights, the right to manage. Well, if a digital health company is offering a telemedicine service to me, they need to, to some degree, manage some data. It may not be, it's not going to be a transcript. Maybe it is, but some companies are looking to do things like that, actually convert your discussions into a transcript. So that they have to manage the information if you want that service with them. If you don't want that service, if you want to remove any middle person, then we have to think about it from that lens. Is that possible? Could we do it that way with digital health where we're avoiding having additional parties involved in the, in the uh, treatment where you could have an interaction between a doctor and a patient that is just between the doctor and the patient? Could we simplify the model of healthcare? These are all valid questions and I don't think there's one yes or no. We will have a mix of all of the above. But you will need to have more than one party managing, mm -hmm. more than one party possessing. Yeah. Big question is around income. Who gets to make money from the data? If there is value in it, not all data has value, but if there is part of the data that does have value, who has the right to that money? Who has the right to the, any income? And can I prevent another person from making money from data? that they have accrued. So it would be a digital health company that is collecting certain analytics potentially that might be useful, making money from marketing or advertising. Do I have a right to any of that? Very complicated questions. And thank you for raising the topic. I guess when you start looking at these things from the legal perspective, if you started from the legal perspective, you wouldn't come very far, I think, or at least it would take so, a very long time because you just highlighted about how complex things can be when they're often mm. not perceived as so complex. And in the realms of uh, data ownership, I think the big thing is that so too many people up until today and still don't have access to their information. And one of the big things that happened in April in the US was the new federal rule, which uh, was accepted and basically dictates healthcare providers to enable patients access to their records and notes by October uh, 2022. And one thing that I started thinking here based on the hurdles that we see with interoperability is to which degree do laws suffice in bringing change because we see that you can dictate something mm. to happen, but it still doesn't mean yes. it's going to happen in practice. So healthcare providers don't mm -hmm. push data in interoperable yeah. backbones. Yeah. Mm. How do you see that problem that law has? No, not everyone's going to yeah. uh, pursue it. Sometimes it's valid for the law to step in because we're not seeing change and people want change. And so the law can be a very effective a, a way of bringing about societal change and changing behavior. And so one, one big positive that I could state from looking at even my health record system is that it's bringing about a certain change. You can criticize the policy and the law itself if you want to, but look at the bigger picture of um, how law is playing a role in digital health. With the same token, sometimes the law is not the appropriate way of going about achieving change or the law is brought about with haste. And it's almost, it doesn't make sense because it takes so long for the law to step in. If you look at 
how it's usually done, the law is quite reactive many times. But yet when the lawmaker chooses, the lawmakers choose to act, they act sometimes with haste. They are not, they haven't prepared people and society for what's about to happen. And so that's where I'm hoping to affect some change around that at that stage where you decide we're acting. And so I'd like to, to say, look at the eight, eight pillars, for example, just for an example and consider them. And the reality is that when laws are passed, those eight pillars are already part of the lawmaking process. They're inherent and ingrained within our legal systems already. It's just about stepping back and saying, how did I consider this? Is there another perspective? How am I gonna respond and balance these arguments? And at the end of the day, what we're all trying to do is to present a convincing argument and so it's really a matter of how convincing one can be with that argument. With looking at what, what's happened in the US, I have two different hats, you know, I have wear these different hats and I think of it from different perspectives. One is the advocate and the, the person who loves digital health and wants to see it in, ingrained in society and succeed. And so when I wear that hat, I think to myself, this is great. This is good for digital health because it's providing access. It could empower patients. It's shifting the paradigm straight away. It's sudden. We've shifted the paradigm. There's no going back from here, or at least for a very long time. But then I put my legal hat on and I think about the cases that I've read. Situations where patients who not only wanted access to information, but they wanted a description of the very process that a doctor went through to diagnose them with a disease. Case law that I've read, where a patient wanted to know the exact process and they wanted to understand every element of how the doctor reached its diagnosis a specialist and how they reached the diagnosis because they didn't agree with the diagnosis. And you read all of these cases and you've got that in your mind that what has just happened now is transformative for society, but that it's going to be a challenging shift. It's a big change and it, we need to support people in those changes when we bring about big paradigm shifts, we need to support people so that they can manage that change, especially if it's retrospective. Because what you're doing is you're, going, you're letting people access. And I haven't looked, I haven't looked at that specific legislation, mm -hmm. but I'll just state generally on retrospectivity that if something, and it's, I'm just putting this as a hypothetical, if something is retrospective, and you're saying you can now access anything that exists about you from back in time, including notes. And again, I don't know the ins and outs of this particular law. I'd have to read the legislation. I'd have to liaise with US professionals and I'll, I will be getting to that at some point. But if it's retrospective, we have to take extra care. 
we have to take extra care and be extra sensitive to the change and what that could, how that, how that will feel for physicians right now, the concerns and worries that they might be having about these changes. And from the patient's perspective, we want to make sure that the people are empowered, but they're not demanding all of their information and sitting there on their weekends, analyzing it, highlighting it, examining it, trying to be a doctor and diagnosing themselves and creating anxiety and worry for themselves. All of that needs to be considered. That's a really interesting thing, what you just said, patients analyzing the decision-making processes in healthcare. And the reason why I think this is important to highlight is you are working in Australia, but also in the U.S. market. And in the U.S. market, it's not unusual for patients to get surprise bills. It's not unusual to, for patients to file lawsuits. And a lot of that is connected to the high costs of healthcare in the U.S. So I see where, where you're coming from in trying to prevent patients from being a doctor when they're not. But at the same time, how can they not be when, you know, they are perceived mm -hmm. as healthcare mm -hmm. consumers that shop for healthcare, shop for healthcare, basically. And that's just the discourse mm -hmm. that we see in the US. And I have a huge problem with that exactly because of what you also highlighted. You can't be the decision maker if you're not, yes. you don't have the medical background. Given that you're present in both markets, what kind of changes do you see in weighting the values of society, the eight pillars in decision making? of how the digital health law and digital health in general goes forward. One of the biggest challenges that we face is communication and communicating respectfully with empathy, with understanding for another human. That goes to the core of everything and everything will flow from there. And I know it sounds a little bit cliche and a little bit, I'm not suggesting we all hold hands and dance in a circle and do meditation together and, and all of that. I'm just saying that at the core of it, whether it be a doctor or a patient or an administrator or a lawmaker, you're a human being. You're a human being and your decisions affect others and the way you communicate affects others. So... As a patient, think about the physician. You know, I know it's hard because you're going in to be treated for something and you're upset and you're stressed and you're worried, but think about the physician. They may be tired and they may be overworked and they may be just trying their very best to help you in the situation. If you're a, a, a doctor, think about the patient. They just want to be empowered. They want to feel in control of their lives. As a lawmaker, consider the fact that your decisions are impacting people in a significant way and they may not be ready for it. So timing is important and how we communicate to the public, educate the public and help them, support them is important. So communication is essential and that's why I'm a big advocate for the role of psychology, the discipline of psychology in helping us progress digital health forward because we need experts who understand safe and effective communications and human behavior to have a role in the process within organizations 
and within governments. You are dealing in the healthcare space. I would be very interested to hear from a psychologist on the impact of the patient having a lot of information about all of the particulars and what would they say to a patient if there was a clinical interaction and their patient came to them and said, I've got my entire file here and I could sit here now for the next two weeks and read it and try and understand it and work it out. What would they say to that patient? You know, sometimes I wonder about that and I think of it from that perspective. But there's no denying that, and I don't want to in any way undermine the right of a patient to be empowered. But what does that mean? You've got to empower yourself by looking after yourself. And looking after yourself means being sensible around data, being sensible around your communications, and really being mindful of how everything impacts your health. And so, yes, communication, I think, is going to be essential as we progress forward. I just have one more question for you, and that is, is there anything you miss in the discussion, debate, discourse about law in digital health? And are there any hot topics apart from those that we already mentioned that you would like to highlight? I have my particular areas of focus. I consider there to be four branches of digital health law, and my work does look at all four branches. However, law is a huge space and we have jurisdiction specific issues that need to be addressed by lawyers within those jurisdictions. I come from Australia. Australia is a common law country and the way that our legal system works is different to a civil jurisdiction, for example. And so I always, especially when I'm looking at a civil jurisdiction, wanting to uh, be extra, extra cautious around any communication. That's why I don't usually comment on anything relating to Europe. And I definitely feel more comfortable in the common law domain because that's where my skill sets are. There's a lot of ground to cover. I'm excited that I'm going to be collaborating with a US attorney. Very soon we're going to be putting um, together something uh, that will be very helpful to the digital health community to educate the digital health community to empower patients and, and providers. So that project will be coming out soon. You'll hear about it uh, soon. And I think we just need to be mindful for anyone. We need to be mindful of where our understanding and expertise begins and where it ends and when a referral is is appropriate. So that's something I'm always mindful about. But yeah, we have a lot of ground to cover, a lot of really interesting issues. And if anyone wants to read about some of my work, you can access, I've got a series from Medical Journal of Australia Insight that is available online to anybody. A lot of my work is behind a paywall, a lot of work, work I did for LexisNexis, which was deep legal analysis. And that was the audience were, were legal practitioners. And I'm actually happy it's behind some kind of paywall slash you have to be a lawyer to access it because it's looking at cases and legislation in a lot of depth. And I don't want that kind mm -hmm. of analysis to be out there in, in the world. You have to be mindful of those things that what I put out publicly is usually quite broad. You'll probably notice it's usually quite broad. It's these, these concepts and ideas to get people thinking, but I, I don't really go into any proper legal analysis. So if you're interested in accessing that kind of work and you're a lawyer, 
I'm most happy to share that those articles with you and I'd be very happy to hear from any legal practitioners who are looking for some assistance on projects that they're working on. If you're in Australia, I would be interested to, to talk to you. If you're in the US and you're a legal practitioner and you're looking for some extra help, I'd be happy to talk to you about policy and strategy ideas that I have. And of course, the digital health community is a fantastic community. I think we all, uh, and for those that I've met, we care deeply about health and improving healthcare. I'm very inspired by the work of people like Gil Bash and John Muster and Raphael Grossman, incredible. That work inspired me to then go into the area and I just, I think it's such an important field. So I look forward to continuing this discussion and thank you so much for having me today. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do go to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and leave a rating or a review. And if you're interested in exploring more shows in the digital health and healthcare space, do browse through the Health Podcast Network. Go to www.healthpodcastnetwork.com. Stay tuned.